What if you grew up in a belief system that told you everything around you was an illusion? What if you were told everything that happened to you, from being sick to stubbing a toe to being bullied at school, was your fault for not knowing the truth? What if you were denied even the most basic health care, from pain pills to checkups to vaccinations? How do you unravel yourself from this belief system? And what happens when you do? My name is Hillary Alexander, and this is Leaving Christian Science. So welcome to episode two of Leaving Christian Science. Uh, this time I'm going to be interviewing Jeremy Bowers. Hi, Jeremy. Hi. Uh, I met Jeremy through Facebook, uh, through the ex-Christian Scientist Facebook group, which I think I've been in at least 10 years. I know that I was definitely in more of a, a crisis place when I joined, like I think a lot of the new members probably are. Um, mm -hmm. And I found it extremely helpful if, if you know, for nothing else, just to find community and people that go through shockingly similar experiences and and get it and understand it and don't say what well why are you doing that why do you feel that way i don't understand no we we understand <laughs> definitely yeah so jeremy um you're based out of canada yep and um tell us the story when did christian science uh, find your family how far back does it go um, i guess i'd say i'm third generation on both sides but it found my mom's side earlier, I think, through her father. Um, I, I'm i a little bit more sketchy on my mom's history because we didn't always talk about it. And I've learned a lot from it just from a little box of memorabilia I found about a month ago going through some stuff I'd been carting around since I inherited it from them. Um, she, um, I So I don't know if my grandmother you know her mother was into it until she married my grandfather who was always into it and from what i know quite hardcore about it uh, my grandmother was from western virginia and immigrated to canada when she married my grandfather so i i have some distant cousins in west virginia and, and virginia uh, long and short story, that's also how I got status to live in the States for a number of years. Mm. Um, my grandfather died of, surprise, untreated diabetes when mom was about 18. Um, my grand, So back in the 1940s, my grandmother was left to raise basically two kids on her own. My mom was nearly 18 and she bolted as soon as she could because she didn't want to be parentified and went to live with an aunt and went to the university in Manitoba while my grandmother and her much younger siblings ended up in Victoria, BC, which is quite a ways from Manitoba. And uh, my grandmother became a Christian science nurse at a place called Wayside House, which unfortunately still exists. And it's in Victoria, about two hours drive from where I live. And um, so for people so, who don't know, um, what exactly is a Christian science nurse? What do they do? Um, you know, when I've described, I couldn't figure out what what it was analogous to until I married my wife, who is a clinical uh, social worker. So she works at the hospital, that sort of thing. So she knows what everything is. Um, I would, the modern equivalent, I would say, is a care aid. Um, so they can provide basic physical care like wound care, food modification, they can help you with mobility, 
but that's about it. Um, in Christian science, obviously, they're very forbidden from administering medication, but care aids also would be. You have to be an R, a registered nurse, at least here in BC, to um, administer medication. So in a nutshell, that's what a Christian science nurse is, more of a care aid. Yeah. So did um, you ever talk with your mother about the loss of her dad? Did she have any sort of take on that? Like, how did she explain that to you? Or did she? Or did you just not talk um, about it? We didn't talk about it much. But sometimes you can get a lot just from someone's tone. Yeah. When they um, talk about something. Uh, she did tell me what it was. That's how I knew it. Um, and it was confirmed by other relatives as well. Um, she... I could sense an undertone of bitterness about it mm. and putting connecting a lot of dots from those conversations from years ago to what I discovered in this box of memorabilia. She was close to him, I think. She was never close to her own mother. They had a not so good relationship. Um, you know, my mom was born exactly nine months after her parents got married in a very conservative Western Manitoba town, which is the Canadian equivalent of, I don't know, Texas Panhandle probably down in the States. So the chin waggers were going full tilt when she was born. They were all doing and math. She, yeah, <laughs> and, and also she was not planned. And my grandmother never hesitated to let her know that. But that's not really CS related. Right. Um, but so I think there was bitterness. Um, and I, I I have a feeling, I mean, she always kind of questioned it, but she was never upfront about it. It was always under the surface. And she saw doctors on the sly once in a while. Mm. But it, But at the end of the, but in her last days, she chose CS. She chose a Christian science death. Yeah. And I mean, we'll probably get into that later. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's that's an important topic. So when you were a kid, did you get medical care? Did she take you to doctors or give you pain pills or anything like that? No. Um, I'm one of three kids that my parents had. I would be the middle child. They had an, I had a sister who died two years before I was born. And a younger brother who I did grow up with, but he died when he was 16 and I was 18. Oh, wow. Um, I wouldn't necessarily relate their deaths really to Christian science. Um, but because um, they did die under medical care. But um, there's laws here in Canada that don't allow you to deny your child medical care when they need it. The reason I never received it is to, it, you could say I didn't need it necessarily. I will, I, I, I put air quotes around, I didn't need it. I should have had it, but luckily I recovered and I was fine. And back in the 1970s and 80s, the schools were less likely to question if a kid was absent for a week or anything like that. Nowadays, you'd be getting reported to the Ministry of uh children now or down in the states probably county authorities whoever do does that and um but you know so you know 
my my parents kind of got away without giving me medical care probably when I should have had it. Like when I was six, I suffered from just absolute head splitting earaches. I did I too. Described, yeah. You know, I described the pain as being like having a nail pounded through your head. And when I, you know, now I realize that could have been treated simply with antibiotic eardrops and pain medications. I was treated through Christian science. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have very visceral memories of writhing in pain in bed. Oh, God. With terrible <laughs> earaches around that age, really young, you know, probably four to six. And mm -hmm. obviously not getting any treatment or, or comfort. No, no. <laughs> you know, there was a weird duality with my my parents. Um, they weren't they didn't fall into the total radical reliance camp. Like I've read, I've heard some horror stories, you know, from various ex-Christian scientists about, you know, parents being mad at them when they got sick, punishing them, sending them to their rooms and all of that. Um, I never got any of that. My parents were very, they acknowledged I was in pain. Like they didn't say, oh, you know, that's bullshit. You know, they said, you know, they acknowledged it and they comforted me. You know, some of my best childhood memories are my mom singing hymns to me. Yeah. Um, I swear her voice could have cured cancer. So could her hot lemonade with honey. Um, but, you know, so there was, there was this acknowledgement on one side, but then on this duality, then they would go into the Christian science because, well, this is how we're going to heal this child we go to Christian science where we deny it now. So you're somewhere like between four and six years old when I remember these earaches hitting me and other maladies. When I was in second grade, I missed two weeks of school from, I think it was whooping cough or something. I don't remember exactly. It was horrible. But, um, you know, you have this comfort and acknowledgement, but then this denial. And sometimes I was put on the phone with the practitioner who barked it into my ear, my ear that wasn't aching. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that pain is not real. And I'm like, you know, I mean, obviously a kid, I'm not thinking this, but as an adult relating this, I'm like, bull fucking shit, it isn't. Yeah, it isn't to you. <laughs> so, you know, you think about it, you know, and this relates maybe to a later topic we'll get to about mental health issues but you know i've read some literature and if anyone wants to learn something of really good stuff about psychology and that sort of thing look up gabor mate hmm. he did a lot of work with addicts in vancouver bc here um but a lot of it can be related to any kind of childhood trauma your brain is wiring itself from when you're born till about six years old because if we came out with a fully developed brain, no woman would survive, survive childbirth. So during that time, you have a physiological need for love, comfort, and acknowledgement. And if you don't get that, it fucks with you. You end up, you know, the guys on the street that I used to see every day where, where I worked in Kelowna. Um, you, or a different dimension of that is you're growing up, say, in a cult like christian science and your pain is not being treated properly it's being denied what does that do to your psyche what does that do to your own 
cell validation of who you are. So that has a profound effect on you that stays with you. Yeah. I find that um I even now I'm I'm hypersensitive to being shamed. Mm -hmm. Um oh, and I'm, God, I know nobody yes. nobody likes being shamed for sure. I'm not unique yeah. in this, but personally I think it comes from being so gaslit and being yeah. so you yeah. know told what did you do to make this happen to you oh. and you need to work on your thinking and you mm -hmm. need to do this and you need to fix this things that aren't fixable like having a cold mm -hmm. or having an earache yeah. you know so oh, i still yeah. have this like hair trigger temper when somebody shames me about something mm -hmm. i just want to like <laughs> yeah well me me too and and for me it's it's sometimes a reaction of cowering into my corner and that's a huge mental health issue that's i've had to deal with recently and i had to take three months off of work stressfully because I damn near burned myself out and had a breakdown. Mm. And, you know, even, even, you know, my wife getting slightly pissed off at me, which, you know, I'm a guy, <laughs> you know, it's what we do to our wives. We piss them off quite often, <laughs> but, you know, I will sometimes overreact. Yeah. Like, like we had an incident in, in Costco and my reaction actually embarrassed her because people thought that she was about to beat on me or something. Mm. And all she was was a little bit ticked off that I had gone off down an aisle and she was calling after me. I didn't even hear, you know? Yeah. And so, and that leads to issues at work where you're, you're scared shitless of the boss being mad at you or something, you know? Yeah. I think, I think, and people coming out of any sort of authoritarian group, certainly, and and things mm -hmm. like Christian Science, which I wouldn't really call authoritarian. Yeah, it is, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of, but not 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 mm -hmm. really, because we didn't have like a living, you know. You didn't have the charismatic leader. <laughs> charismatic like, leader, know, Jim Jones, or in in yeah, in, we didn't have that. In... But I, I do think that I think it's fair to say that many of us will end up having trouble with authority figures. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's been a huge one for me. Yeah, me too. Counsel big, big yeah. one. Off to a later topic, probably counseling really helps with that. But yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you so you were lucky enough to not be radical reliance, which mm -hmm. again I'll explain for people who don't know what that is. It's it's sort of like the ultra uber Christian scientist mm -hmm. where you absolutely do not take any kind of medication. You never see doctors. It's a complete reliance on you know, the power of scripture to heal you of all oh, absolutely. ailments. Unfortunately, I was in a radical reliance <laughs> family and yeah, managed to survive. Your other podcast. I don't think that, you know, it's funny. I don't think our mother would even call us that. I don't know that she would like proudly proclaim. She wouldn't have seen it. She wouldn't have seen it that way, to be honest. Probably not. Yeah. I don't think she would have. Yeah. But, um, but as you're saying that the, the mental health issues, uh, are still there yep. because of yep. the way our families were mm -hmm. because of the denial, because of the gaslighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I was lucky that, you know, I didn't have anything serious like cancer, which took down my sister or my brother had severe cerebral palsy. So mm. he, there was no choice. You know, he had, epilepsy to a degree that he was having several seizures a day so that had to be medicated or you know you just don't survive yeah and 
Um, I mean, his death, I mean, yeah, you might say he was really young. But on the other hand, most people with cerebral palsy to the degree he had it don't may usually don't live beyond their 20s. Um, the old, I mean, one of his classmates in his special education class that he was in, she made it, she lived to be 32, but that's very unusual. Um, so, you know, just to make it clear, I mean, I've lost two siblings, but not to Christian science. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the reaction to their deaths, however, is definitely very Christian science. <laughs> right, right. And what was what was the sort of family reaction around having lost both of these people? Um, well, my sister, I, you know, I don't know because I wasn't there. And my parents didn't talk about it much. I mean, I was 16 before I knew it was cancer. Until then, it was weird. They just said she got really sick. So that had the effect of every time I had a stomach ache, I was scared. Mm. Um, but you know the form of cancer she had in the night 1962 because she would have yeah she would have been 1964 I guess because she was born in 1962 um she it it's curable now but not then yeah so um, and they didn't know that they just thought she was sick. She wasn't barely old enough to talk. So they knew she was sick. They knew something was up, but they didn't get her to the hospital right away. And you could make a case that most parents wouldn't have necessarily right away. And But then they realized, oh, shit, something's up. They went to the hospital and she died in their arms not long after they got her there. And my understanding, it was... Uh, pancreatitis or liver cancer or something like that if you catch it early enough you can cure it but unfortunately even nowadays most people die from it because you don't know you have it till it's too late yeah and certainly mm -hmm. in, a, in a little nonverbal child mm -hmm. you know you just have no way of knowing oh yeah so i mean even now it you know chances are it, the same thing would have happened yeah um but yeah, there were many times I should have had medical care and I didn't. Yeah. But I was lucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah well. I, was too. I think I was lucky. So when you were young, did you, mm -hmm. were you all in or were you skeptical? Were you, what was your attitude about, about Christian science? I was skeptical. Um, I always remember one incident when I was in Sunday school and I think I was around 11 years old and, um, we were doing the whole, you know, it's the whole matter is not real bullshit. You know, you'll probably hear, if you talk to a thousand ex-Christian scientists, they will say that matter is not real bullshit at some point. And, um, and you're going to hear me say bullshit a lot tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That's why this podcast is marked explicit content. <laughs> so well, we I watched your, I watched your last one and you guys swore a bit. So I was like, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I'm like, I can't talk about my experience without, without some profanity. Yeah, me either. But I treat it like salt. A little bit's <laughs> nice, too much, and it tastes like shit. Um <laughs> But I call Christian science highly refined bullshit. Um, but I remember, you know, thinking I was we're hearing this whole matters not real crap. And, you know, it came to kind of my turn to say something. 
and I slapped my hand on the table. I was a kid you never wanted in your Sunday school class if you were a Sunday school teacher. And I said, well, this feels pretty damn real to me. I don't know if I said exactly that, but some version of that. And before you ask, I don't remember what the teacher said. You know, it was some stupid CS platitude, Christian science platitude, like, well, you're just not understanding it right, or you're not, you know, your 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 senses are deceiving you. You right. know what I mean? My hand is throbbing because I hit that table pretty hard. Everyone in the Sunday school heard me because <laughs> like, it went dead silent when I did that. <laughs> and so there were always doubts, but I, but on the other side of the coin, in a way, I was sort of all in as well. You know, I went all the way through Sunday school. I went to Christian Science summer camp. And, you know, there's a summer camp here in B in British Columbia that I went to. It still exists. And um, and then I, you know, went to Principia College for four years. You know, I started when I was 20. I waited a few years. And so I think it was kind of like I wanted it to work. And if admitting that it was bullshit meant that I had to admit that my parents were idiots, and I loved them. And I didn't think they were idiots. I still don't think they were idiots. I think they were misguided. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of factors. And, you know, it gives me a lot of empathy for people and understanding of people who are stuck in abusive relationships, really. Um, you think it should be straight up easy. You know, he hits you, you should leave. Um, Christian science doesn't work. It's bullshit. You should leave. And it's more complicated than that. Yeah. And especially when so much of it is about honoring your parents mm -hmm. and not even so much trying to make them proud of you or anything like that, but really, you know, there's this, there's this deep sense of, I want to honor them. I want to follow through yeah. with the things that they gave me, you know, yeah. abandoning yeah. them seems cruel. It seems unkind to them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's what held me in. Um, because I didn't leave till after they died. So, yeah. And you worked at the church center too. You actually worked. Oh yeah. I forgot church. to mention that. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I lived, uh, well, I lived down in the States for 20 years in Seattle and Boston. So, uh, went, you know, went to print college and I was living in Seattle at the time. So I dutifully traveled across to Illinois every year. And then I moved to Boston and worked there for 10 years. Yeah, 99 to 2009. And initially worked in the broadcast services department, you know, the people who produce Sentinel Radio and um, annual meeting broadcasts and all of that. You know, June was never a time you could take vacation. <laughs> and um, so, and then... I got laid off from that and went to work in the um, Committee on Publication Office, or COPs as a lot of people call it. And I mean, that would be analogous to a public relations arm of the church, although they bristle at being called that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I can try and plumb some memories from that later if you want. <laughs> <laughs> So um, when when did you start to really 
come away from it? You said it was after your parents died and yeah. you were free to mm -hmm. abandon it. How did that go down for you? Um, I'll try and give you the Coles notes version. Otherwise we'll be here for hours, but <laughs> um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was around about, well, it was 2009. My parents both died in 2009. Oh, wow. So I lost my parents when I was 41 years old and, uh, which is sort of young. A lot, most of my peers, I'm 56 now. Most of my peers still have at least one parent. Um, I mean, my parents were older when they had me to start with. So mom was nearly 40 when she had me, but you know, cause she'd be 95 or something if she was still alive now. But, um, yeah, they, mom died in, they both died on holidays. Mm -hmm. Mom died on St. Patrick's day, March 17th. And dad died on Christmas day, December mm -hmm. 5th. So I do have a complicated relationship with Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my wife loves Christmas. I like it. But, you know, um, complicated, it's yeah. kind of to put it in Facebook terms, it's complicated. And um, so I first became aware of mom being ill, probably not long before Christmas 2008. And, um, you know, dad would just kind of drop little hints, Easter eggs, if you want to call them that. And, um, and then finally, I remember getting a care package because we had kind of talked about me coming out for Christmas and then we decided, well, you know what, don't bother. The weather's shitty out here in the winter. It's hard to travel. Why don't you just wait and come out for a longer time in the spring, which is when our association meeting was. And we can talk about what that is later. Um, so I, we agreed I wasn't going to come home for Christmas. So they sent me a care package with mom's usual baked goods that I grew up with. And there's, you know, a lot of belief in the, in, in, like indigenous spirituality that I later embraced after I left Christian science about the energy you put into food when you prepare it. Mm. And even though I'm atheist now, I think I do put some stock in that because when I ate those goodies and this was stuff I have eaten into since I grew my first tooth, um, something was off. Mm. I couldn't put my finger on it, but something was off. Yeah, I'm sure she made it exactly the way she normally does, measured everything the way she normally does, cooked it, all of that. But something was off. I can't deny it. I distinctly remember it. And then it was shortly after that, that dad came clean that she was seriously ill with something. We don't know. And um so eventually i think it was january 2009 he carted her off to this christian science care facility wayside house they lived in Kelowna, bc wayside houses in victoria um maybe the same province but it's a long way provinces here are a lot bigger than your states <laughs> and um so six hours drive and two hours on a ferry because Victoria's on an island. I live on an island now. <laughs> and uh, so somehow she made it and she was there until she died. And dad never went into a whole lot into what she was dealing with physically. That just wasn't it. He was a Christian scientist. I was a Christian scientist. 
It's not something you would have discussed. <laughs> yeah, so, it wouldn't come up at all. No, it wouldn't. But some of the bullshit stories that were shared with him by the nurses after he left, like he stayed there with her for a couple of weeks, but then he had to come home and pay bills and deal with the house, you know? And so he came home and, and left her there in their care care <laughs> um, and he would you know get reports from him that she was sitting up with them beside the piano singing hymns dancing in the hall and i mean i kid you not this was the shit that he told me anyway um on the other hand years later after their deaths and you know i'm talking to one of my cousins who was one of my only cousins that also grew up in Christian science. Most of the rest of my family were not Christian science. And um, my aunts and uncles were all raised in it, but most of them left except one. And, uh, but this cousin lived in Vic lives in Victoria and she went to visit my mom all the time. My mom was like a second mother to her. So, um, and uh, she painted a very different picture. <laughs> She said, your mother could barely sit up mm. and she was in unimaginable pain. I could tell that from the conversations I had on her with, had with her on the phone. We went from talking, barely speaking on the phone much because neither of us are much for talking on the phone to every day because, and I kind of made that effort because I kind of had a feeling and she, you could tell she was in pain, just the tone of her voice. She was choking back some major league pain. You know, and they, you go to the hospital and say, how's your pain? One to 10, 10 being the worst. I'd probably put her pain at 20. And she, there was no fucking way she was doing all this stuff. Yeah. My cousin described her abdomen being distended like she was pregnant or had swallowed a basketball. Um, she died there. She was 80 years old and it was a license. It's a license under the care facilities act here. Um, so those circumstances didn't necessitate an autopsy and my dad wasn't about to ask for one. So couldn't tell you what killed her. I have theories. Yeah. Either, uh, some sort of a bowel obstruction or something like that, or can't, or, a very fast metastasizing cancer. So yeah. my wife well, thinks it was an obstruction based on what I've told her. Interesting. Yeah. We'll never know what killed our mother either. <laughs> yeah. Some questions will never be answered. Um huh? in our in our gruesome case, um, you know, because our mother died alone in her apartment after she had alienated both of oh, us. Oh God, that was horrific. Like she'd been there for days or something, right? We, you know, at first we thought days but based on when she was found um and when her last internet activity was i mean it could have been weeks oh dear lord and it was down in brazil down in brazil like and tropical environment and yeah it's just i mean it's just a horror on. show it's an absolute horror show and we we, we tried mm -hmm. to get an autopsy and it came back inconclusive because she was so Far gone. So far gone yeah. I mean, it's just horrendous. And I and I too have that feeling of even though I wasn't in her life as she was dying, of often being haunted by the thought of how much she suffered mm -hmm. physically, 
you know, oh, I mean, certainly emotionally she was suffering too. I've, you know, I've no doubt, mm -hmm. but the thought of what the horrific agony she must've been in, it just, it breaks my heart, you know? And you can't even imagine it. I mean, basically, you know, in a nutshell, and I've heard it said in, in online among ex-Christian scientists, you know, it's a, it's a 19th century way of dying. Yeah. Because, I mean, back in the 19th century, the reason Christian science took off is going to the doctor was probably worse than Christian science. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, modern medicine has changed it. And in a lot of developed countries like where I live now, you have very easy access to health care. And it's which, free. <laughs> and it's free. I mean, we pay taxes, but, you know, it's um, it's it's still, you know, you're not. I'm not, I don't have to worry about being financially destroyed by going to the hospital. And so I just go, I go to the doctor at the slightest drop of a hat because it's not going to cost me anything. And you, you know, my dad always said Medicare, which is what we call our healthcare system here in Canada, basically killed Christian science here. Not that it was ever very alive here anyway. Um, I think at the height, there might've been 40 churches across the whole country and i think i don't know gary does in our group does this thing this um count i think it's maybe 25 here now i don't know um very concentrated in just a few areas too um but i guess back to the original what we were originally talking about um i was you know to go on to my dad you know my mom's death didn't push me out it started, it probably started the process. Um, but, you know, fast forward, my dad's health and mental health really declined rapidly after mom died. Yeah, you know, I never realized, you know, they always seemed really independent to me. But after she died, and I, I was out visiting him at our the time we had planned in the spring in May, and we went down to our association meeting, we both had the same teacher. Um, he was like a ship that lost its rudder. I never realized how symbiotic their relationship was because they always seemed very independent. You know, they both worked outside the house, both had careers, all of that stuff. And, but yeah, he couldn't even, it was like some really basic decisions. He couldn't even fathom making them himself. And, you know, I remember even joking to him about there's one of the widows in their little church was inviting him out for lunch a lot. <laughs> and uh, he was talking about it. And I was like, I kind of looked at him. I go, oh. I said, I know what's going on. I said, you're fresh meat in the pond here. Yeah. I said, she's after you. <laughs> and, you know, I said it as a joke, but he he got real quiet and he said, eh. I'm a one woman man and she's not here anymore. And fuck if I don't choke up every time I say that yeah. still. I mean, it's been 13 years now. And for 14 years, God, yeah. Um, so, you know, his health declined rapidly. His mental health really declined. My cousins shared a kind of horror story of coming out to visit him and they went for a drive and he drove. And 
you know, they're lucky they didn't get into an accident. So I had his keys taken away and he didn't take that very well. Um, that was a, I think that was the first time he ever called me an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then I guess around November, I got a call from a couple of their friends from the church who kind of checked in on him once in a while. And they just hit me with some really bad news that he was not doing well at all and gave me a very graphic picture. So I made arrangements to fly out right away. And when I got to his house, I found a man who had really super deep bed sores, like, you know, knuckle deep. Wow. And because he was just by himself, right? He was by himself. Yeah. You know, people were checking in on him. I kind of had made sure that when it became really clear that things weren't right, you know, I had that, I kind of made those arrangements until I could get out there. Because I was still living in Boston, remember? And Kelowna is all the way across the country into another country. <laughs> and so it's a it's a day's journey to pull it off. Yeah. And so he could barely stand up. I mean, he was, I mean, it was scary, but he refused to even acknowledge that anything was wrong. Hmm. I had to, I had to trick him to go to the hospital. He had called 911 earlier um, in the week when he had fallen and he refused to go to the hospital with the paramedics and they can't force you to. Yeah. And so I told him, I said, you know, the next morning, I said, when, you know, it had been a rough night. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to call the paramedics. I said, are you going to go with them? And he was, no, 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 no I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he had a deep mistrust of the medical system. And I said, tell you what, I said, if you don't go and you stay here, let's say I leave you here and I go back home. I said, guess what's going to happen? I said, you'll probably die. And then the authorities are going to ask me, well, what the fuck did you do? You just left them there. And I basically told them I made up a bullshit story that I could be held criminally liable if I left them, um, which is not true. But <laughs> um, but he doesn't know that. Right. So that's how I got him to go. And I rode in the ambulance with him. And long and short, he never left the hospital. He died there. Um, shortly after I got him in there, he had a massive stroke and that sent him deep. He was already kind of slipping into dementia that sent him off the edge. Um, the brain scans that they took showed evidence of earlier strokes and one that they said was particularly old. And that took me back to a memory of the 1990s when something happened and we thought it had been healed. Wow. It wasn't. Yeah. Um, but I figured, you know, that was a stroke as well. Um, and he, and, and I think the fall he had in the house was another one. And then he had the one in the hospital. So basically he was turned into, he was rendered like a child afterwards. Um, he wouldn't recognize me when I came to visit him sometimes. And, you know, first time that happens cuts through you like a hot knife through butter. Yeah. And until you realize what's happening. You know, I realized that in the dementia, he was time traveling and 
when he didn't recognize me, it's because he thought it was like 1942 or something like that. And he was 12 years old and he and his brother were beating each other up. Mm. And my speech pattern is very similar to my uncle's. And so when I would come in, he would sometimes look at me and go, hey, asshole, because that's what he called his brother when they were kids, because they hated each other when they were kids. As adults, they were friends. Yeah. Right? Um, and the nurses kind of would thought it was funny. <laughs> you know, there was one time I came in, I guess I was just in a really bad mood. I was getting stressed because I stayed out for a month until after he died. And uh, he goes, hey, asshole. And I just looked at him and I said, I don't have to fucking take this shit from you anymore. <laughs> I said, you know my name. And I looked at him and it shocked him back to the present. And, you know, I think the nurse was like, oh, oh shit, what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we had our visit. You know, so I visited him every day and I spent most, usually I would go in and spend the whole afternoon and, and give him dinner and stuff. And, but when I checked him in, you know, I had signed all the forms that basically said, don't take extraordinary means, you know, to keep him alive or anything. Because he and I, over many, many years, had had very explicit conversations about his wish. He had watched his own mother waste away in a care facility after a bad stroke. And he did not want to go that way. So uh, after I realized the prognosis for him wasn't good, I actually, I know it sounds morbid, I didn't want him to survive because I knew he was going to be in a state that would just traumatize him. Yeah. It's not what he wanted. No, yeah. it absolutely isn't. Um, but I do know what killed him. It, it was congestive heart failure. Um, the doctors figured he'd probably been suffering from it for at least five years. I pin it down to six or seven years from some early memories you know, like when they came out to Boston to visit me and we were walking through this, we went down to West to Virginia because I wanted to show them Washington, D.C. and all that. And we went to this place called Natural Bridge State Park, which is beautiful. And you park the parking area and then you, you have the parking area and then maybe, you know, one kilometer at the most walk along this broad, flat, wide path along the river to this natural arch that the rivers cut through a cliff and very easy walk. Mom and I just hoofed it right away. Dad had trouble. He had a lot of trouble. And I noticed that that was the first time I noticed it. And that was probably six or seven years before, before then. And then I watched a steady decline from there. And he, sometimes I did say, well, have you thought about going to the doctor? This seems kind of serious. This isn't getting any better. And he, his response was some version of, I'm scared to go because I don't want to know what I'm going to find out. Wow. So that, you know, it's a very Christian science reaction. You're isn't afraid. It, You're afraid. I mean, I have atrial fibrillation myself. And I remember, I think I've had symptoms of it since at least 2006 or seven, when I was still in this crazy sauce, as I call it. And I remember being very alarmed at these symptoms. They would come and go. I mean, I, I don't really get them now because medication corrects it. But once in a while I do, and I'm not afraid of them because they're not harmful. 
um, left untreated, atrial fibrillation can lead to what my dad had, ironically. Yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> my mother said something very similar to me. I forget when this was, obviously, when we were still in touch and we were talking about um, getting a colonoscopy or getting checked mm -hmm. out or something like that. Oh, I love her, those. Yeah, because her father <laughs> had died of colon cancer and her sister ended up dying mm -hmm. of it also. So it's in our family. Oh, and gosh, she yeah. said the exact words she said to me were, well, you know, if I go do something like that, they're just going to start finding stuff. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, that's the whole well, point. That's a, <laughs> that's a the damn fucking stuff. good thing, maybe. Um, yeah. It's so funny oh, that they all say that. They're, they're, and, yeah. and so then, I, I, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's like, well, and this is part of what the like theology, if you will, of Christian science is, if you know about this, then you're going to make it real. Mm -hmm. So that's why you don't want to know about it. And, you know, I mean, to really cover that ground, you know, it's a conversation in Christian science theology, which we're not really here for. But, but yeah, that's one of the things that that theology does to you. You have, yeah. a, you get this fear of knowing. So something happens to you and you're afraid of it. Like I had kidney stones when I was in CS and boy, didn't that, that didn't scare me, you know, um, and good Lord, it's painful. Um, but, um, but there's so much anxiety that comes into play. You know, like I told you about the atrial fibrillation symptoms I would feel once in a while, you get anxious. You're like, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God, I'm going to, you know, well then later when you're diagnosed, I mean, 10 chances to one, it, you're going to be okay. You just need to treat it. I mean, you're not always going to be okay. That's not a guarantee. You know, it could be cancer, you know? Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but for me, knowing is empowerment. Yeah. And, you know, I always, you know, I always remember sitting in the hospital with dad in his last days and you know and this goes to probably one of the other things we want to talk about is what was the turning point for me i just remember i remember looking at some you know notice on the wall or something you know and it had the name of the health authority interior health and i just remember kind of looking at that and going i don't know why um and just thinking and then i'd look back at dad and i go his fate is not, I'm not going to suffer this same fate. And I kind of pinned that as like that moment where I decided I was done, although I didn't consciously know it at the time. But that was the turning point for me, you know, and just the compassionate care he received there. Um, you know, I'm not going to call it love because they're professionals. They're there to do a job. But you know what? They did it with compassion. Despite the fact that he was a complete ass to them half the time, because <laughs> that's what dementia does to yeah, you. They're he used went to from it. <laughs> being a very wonderful, kind man to, you know, it turns you into an asshole. <laughs> and so now were there practitioners involved? Oh, with yes. Him? Yeah. Oh yes, there's a wonderful talk. <laughs> I feel like there's a story here. Oh yes, there is. 
Um, I, I've shared some of it in the online group. I know we're not supposed to talk about what happens in Vegas, but I shared it so I can say that I have. Um, but yeah, the there was a practitioner you've been working on for years or working with for years on this problem. And that's what Christian scientists call them. It's a problem. And he, it was, I will name and shame, man's dead anyway, um, Ed Little. He was a practitioner and teacher based in Bellevue, Washington. Um, he was also my teacher. He was dad's teacher and my teacher. And he was a practitioner on the case. Uh, he made a decent amount of money off dad over the years. And he, when I took dad to the hospital, one of the things, you know, I did was because it's what you're supposed to do. And I was still in this. Remember, I'm still Christian scientist. Um, I told him because I felt like he had to know because there's this big thing about not mixing the two. Oh, yeah. And he, his reaction was something I didn't expect. Instead of, you know, understanding or even the slightest bit of compassion, he was pissed off at me. Absolutely, righteously pissed off. He yelled at me through the phone. And I. this was the day I had gotten dad into the hospital. I had just been driven back home after riding in the goddamn ambulance down the fucking hill over the lake to the hospital. And, and basically realizing my dad was probably about to die. And so he angrily says, you've betrayed your father. You know, he said that. He said, why couldn't you have gotten there, gotten him to Wayside? Hmm. You know, this place I told you about where my mom was. And I was just shocked. Like, I think I had a moment where, I didn't quite know what to do or say, whether to just bust out in tears. But my reaction was very calm. This is sometimes my reaction when I am extremely angry. I just get calm. And just this very quiet voice like this. <laughs> and I said some version of, I said, well, to do that, I would have had to bundle them up in the car and drive for six hours over the Coquihalla summit in November through, through a blizzard possibly. And I said, you got to realize dad can't sit up for more than about 10 minutes. And he would have had to sit up for six hours plus a two and a half hour ferry ride and a 45 minute drive on the other side. I said, I very calmly said, I would have started out with dad and I would have ended up with a corpse. <laughs> and I don't think I wanted, would have wanted to try and explain that to the fucking RCMP when they, when I reported his death. Yeah. <laughs> and what did he say to that? <laughs> if anything, I, I don't know. If, I don't, I honest to God, I don't even remember. Yeah. Because I kind of blocked out the rest of it. I think our conversation just, I remember the end of the conversation was, well, I can't support him anymore because he's in the hospital, but I can support you. 
And I said, well, great. How much is that going to cost <laughs> for your support? Yeah. You know, I, I was just, I, I don't know if I was angry or shocked or it was all of it. And there was a practitioner in a not journalistic practitioner at their local church in Kelowna who offered to work with them. She didn't have a problem going to the hospital. Mm. Um, in fact, all of the members of that little church in Kelowna at various times visited them in the hospital. And I, there was maybe like 11 members of the church, you know, like every other Christian science church, it's dying. It's gone now. Tiny. Yeah. And the church really doesn't exist anymore. I think they shut down. Um, but COVID was the final nail on the coffin. And um, he, at one point I went to visit him in the hospital and I would say three quarters of the members were there. So unlike a lot of Christian scientists, these people, I give them props. They were wonderful. And, but you know, eventually he died. Yeah. He, um, about four days before he died, they told me he would stopped eating. And I said, well, if he doesn't take food, I don't want him, you know, you could feed intravenously. I didn't want that done. I just said, keep him comfortable. Yeah. And Christmas day, I went in to visit him. And that was the first day where he never even opened his eyes or looked at me. He was just unconscious. And I kind of had a feeling, you know, you just have that feeling. So I was with him most of the day till like about four. And then I was invited to a friend's place for Christmas dinner, an old friend from high school days that I'd reconnected with, and she had recently lost a parent as well. And so I went to their place to have dinner with her husband and her kids and her and phone rings. And the only people who had this particular phone number I was using was the hospital. So I knew it was them. We had just finished dinner and they told me. Mm. And so I told, you know, told my friends and I just packed up, went to the hospital. And yeah, that was it. You know, life was forever different after that. And, you know, I went back to Boston, but my heart wasn't in it. And the job was going south anyway, because of Christian science toxicity. <laughs> and I found out that I was probably going to get fired from the job because I wasn't measuring up in some way that they were expecting, but refused to communicate with me. <laughs> it also sounds very Christian science, by the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, a whole nother topic could be working at the Mother Church. Um I learned all about passive aggressiveness yes. and toxic, toxicity from working there. Toxic and, positivity as well, I'm sure. Oh, dear God. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe a little later, I'll share a little funny and scary anecdote. Um, but, you know, I just decided to, you know, 10 years of working there, I made friends who shared information with me and I found out I was going to get fired. So preemptively, I just quit. And fortunately, my parents left me, you know, modest inheritance of a house and a little bit of money. And 
you know, it enabled me to quit, bail the fuck out of Boston and come back home to British Columbia. And I lived in their house for a year, sold the house. And I took a year off from working because I had to, you know, it's like my life and my career was wrapped up in Christian science. And yeah. so I was jumping into the abyss. But, you know, I was privileged. That made it e having that made it easy to leave in a way. Not everyone has that. And so I acknowledge that a lot of my good fortune is privilege. And, um, you know, the, you know, yeah, the process of leaving was gradual. Took about three years. Um, I guess I went to one more association meeting, oddly enough, even after that confrontation with my teacher. And I remember later, I I confronted him via email on the whole thing. It was after this association meeting. And I realized after I got home from it, you know, it was down in Seattle and you know, which isn't far from here. And uh he um I realized that was the last time I was gonna go. But I confronted him on email later about it, told him exactly how it felt for me, all of that. I was honest. I wasn't unkind, but I was honest. And do you think there was any measure of humility in that fucking asshole's <laughs> response? Of course not. Of course not. He doubled down. Yeah. He doubled down and said that, well, you know, I think I knew your dad on a deeper level spiritually <laughs> than you did. Right. And I crafted a response that was the written equivalent of a thousand nuclear warheads coming at him because I have a decent command of the language and I was just fucking livid. Yeah. Because my dad and I were incredibly close my whole life. We had hours long philosophical conversations and never kept secrets. There was nothing about me. He didn't know and nothing about him that I didn't know. And for this man to interject himself like that was just, I mean, hubris is the word we have to describe it, but it doesn't even, that doesn't hit it. There's, you know, I have to make up a different word. And I didn't send the response because what good would it have done, really? You know, I'd have been reducing myself to his level. So I just said, fuck it. And that was the last communication we had. I had withdrawn from association. I had told them I no longer believed in Christian science, which was a requirement for being in it. And that was it for that. So that was probably 2011. Because the last association I went to was 2010. So that was probably around 2011, some ish, somewhere around there. And then the last formal tie was withdrawing from the mother church. And I think that was, I don't know, I found some correspondence on an old memory stick I have here, which was dated, I think, 2013 or 14, one of the two. So it yeah. took about two years um, for the formal ties to go away. So for you, 
you know, you say you're atheist now. Mm-hmm. I consider myself atheist as well. Yeah. Um, for me and for a lot of others I've talked to, it's sort of like the first thing that goes is the church. The first thing is like, mm-hmm. well, I, I don't want to go to the church anymore because that's not what Mrs. Eddie really intended. Like it's sort of gone yeah. astray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I want to be the I want to do the real thing. I want to be like back to the basics. And every religion seems to go through this. When I first moved to LA, I, it was sort of my last, my Hail Mary of still trying to be a Christian scientist. I, I joined the society, right? And it was all these well, young LA people. is the other belly of the beast. It is, for sure. <laughs> but I, I got... Boston's um, one, St. Louis is another, and LA is the, you know, buckhands The celebrity version, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I did, uh, I, I got mixed up with a, a number of Christian scientists when I first moved here. Who actually, to be perfectly fair, were were extremely helpful to me and helped me get into the city and even helped me get my mm-hmm. first job, learn how to drive. So I'm very grateful mm-hmm. to them. They were very kind to me. Um, but that that was the first thing we all did. They were some young people from Principia who had just graduated, and we all were kind of oh, questioning yes. and mm-hmm. thinking like we want to do this thing, but we want it to be different, mm-hmm. you know. So we we formed this little society, and we would kind of sit around and have these philosophical discussions about science. And when I say science, mm-hmm. I mean Christian science, because of course oh, we always of course. It science As opposed to real science. <laughs> right, right. It wasn't actual science. It was Christian science without the christian word um so that was sort of the second step for me was well i still believe in this thing but it has to be done differently Mm -hmm. (laughs) it has to be done more purely than what Mm -hmm. how i was raised in it and then and then the step further from that was well maybe it's not so much I, i can't really call myself a christian scientist anymore i can't really be part of this organization but I'm still a believer. I still believe in Jesus. <laughs> I still believe in the Bible. I still believe in yep. God. And then I'm the laughing Christ- because I relate. <laughs> yeah. And then the Christian part kind of goes mm-hmm. away. And it's like, well, I still believe in a higher power. I still believe mm-hmm. there's like order. I still believe everything happens the way it's supposed to. And, mm-hmm. and there's, a, there's a presence that guides me and protects me. Mm-hmm. And that was the last thing to go, really, was that. Until finally... And it's so much like Julia Sweeney's letting go of God, um, which was one of the the things that I listened to to sort of I help. Need to, I need to look that up. Yeah. Yeah. She she tells a story of after she went through a similar pulling away journey mm-hmm. um, of one day, I think she says she's commenting out her bathtub or something. <laughs> and this this little voice in her says voice in her head says, there is no God. <laughs> and that's how it was for me. Like there was this little oh, voice God. that started saying, what if, now just stay with me. Mm-hmm. What if there's actually no God? Just, just consider mm-hmm. that for the first yep. time in your life. Consider what if there really is no God? What would that mean? Mm-hmm. How would that change your life as you're already living it? Mm-hmm. And honestly, it was really, really scary really Mm -hmm. scary. And my sister and I talked a bit about this feeling of not being protected anymore, that something terrible Mm -hmm. was going to happen, that some calamity would befall you that wouldn't have befallen Mm -hmm. you anyway. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so, so how was that for you? Did you, did you sort of go through those same stages of sort of slowly stepping down or was it kind of all at once? It was similar, Um, similar, but a bit different. Uh, throughout my time as a Christian scientist, 
I always felt like if there was no Christian science, I probably wouldn't be religious. Um, mainstream Christianity never had an appeal to me. It didn't for and me either. Yeah. Then when I moved to the United States, see, Canada is a very secular country. Um, and where I live in British Columbia, the majority of people demographically are not religious here. Um, but the ones who are, I mean, the worst, the most hardcore Christians in Canada do actually live in British Columbia, oddly enough. Mm. But so, you know, religion is a different experience here than it yeah. is in the United States. And but when I moved to the States, I quickly realized, oh, my God, Christianity really isn't for me because <laughs> that's when I got to know evangelical Christians, you know, the the ones who love Trump and the Republican Party and think racism is okay. <laughs> yeah, um, it's great. But I, so there was never going to be going to another Christian church. So when I left Christian science, I wasn't ready to kind of, well, it was gradual. I initially thought, despite my misgivings about my teacher, maybe I would stick with association. Um, then I was like, no, well, I definitely don't want to go to branch churches because that's been a, all my time in Christian science. That was a very unfulfilling experience. And then, you know, I thought, well, maybe I would just still read the books or whatever, you know, there was, you know, kind of that year of 2010, early 2011, that's kind of where I was. Then a lot of the, like, you know, I mentioned my high school friend this person was kind of that keystone person that launched me to the circle of people I have now even though I don't like a lot of the people I initially hung out with from her introductions I don't have any contact with but if I look at most of the people around me in my life even even including my wife there's only one or two degrees of separation from this person now my friend Kelly, she was very, she wasn't religious, but she was spiritual. And she introduced me also to indigenous spirituality. You'd call it Native American down in the States. Um, she's not indigenous herself, but you know, she, when, when I was dealing with dad's issues, she brought me to sweat lodge ceremonies and that really got me through it. Yeah. Like, it's there's there's a sense of god in that belief but it's different like there there's a lakota word that a lot of people will hear it's pronounced wonkantonka and i remember listening to an el, a lakota elder the lakota people are from the north and south dakota in your country and a little bit into alberta here in canada and um and a lot of the ceremonies like powwows and other things that you see are based on their tradition. A lot of other ceremonies have been lost because of what Europeans have done to indigenous people, which, you know, that's a different subject. Um, but Wonkin Tonka doesn't mean God. A lot of people think it does. But he said, no, it's more like the spirit 
that is within everything. And even as an atheist, that's sort of my view. And, you know, like when I walk through the forest, I live in a rainforest, you know, trees that are, you know, 200 meters high that are a thousand years old. And you can't, I mean, I, I put my hand on them and I can't deny that I feel something, you know, this, this is a, this is a being that has zero fucks to give about my problem <laughs> because this thing was a seedling when Jesus, if he existed, was alive. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, maybe not quite that old, you know, maybe like, you know, but you know what I mean? And so I kind of, but, you know, through some of these people, not only did I go through the indigenous spirituality, I also explored some new thought and new age things. Like there's this thing in Kelowna called Center for Spiritual Living. It may exist in the States and there are different guys, but it's, it's basically new thought which originates with a guy named Ernest Holmes, who I think might have been contemporary to Mary Baker Eddy. And in fact, New Thought would be a cousin of Christian science. Um, I wrote a whole blog post about some of this. So, um, you know, it has its roots in the teachings of, of uh, Phineas Quimby, which is where Christian science has its roots. Yeah. And I can feel the barbs of a thousand Christian scientists saying, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, yeah, whatever. Um, so I explored some of this. I got into, oh, crystals. I, you know, I kind of went through a lot of different stuff. And then, you know, I just kind of got to a point where, you know, I knew there wasn't God in the way I believed in it anymore. I came to that conclusion. But you know, I thought maybe there is something. So I kind of was agnostic until I really, you know, got into I, I really read on what what does atheism mean? What is it? And at its core, it's you don't accept the existence of a deity. Now that well, that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, it, you know, it's kind of like within a day, you know, reading this, I think it was even just the Wikipedia article or something. I was like, I'm atheist and I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, and what would change my mind? Evidence. Yeah. If there is evidence that a deity exists, I'll accept it. I will still hate it. Because, <laughs> For all the horrible things it causes. Well, look at the horrible things, you know. Like there's a meme that goes around, you know, it's a quote attributed to David Attenborough, but you know, I, I don't know if it actually is or not. Memes are what they are, but he talks about this worm that can only exist when it burrows into the eyeball of another creature. <laughs> he said, try and convince me that there's an all loving God. If this thing exists, <laughs> you know, if that isn't in a nutshell, what I think of the whole idea of God. Yeah. says. And so, you know, there's, um, oh, there's a British comedian, Stephen Fry. Yeah, you I know, love him. People, him and he did this interview, I think it was on BBC, where the 
the interviewer obviously is a true believer and he talks about well if there was a god i'd i would you know in my my words i'd tell him to fuck off <laughs> because look what you've done this and this and this and this and he outlines a whole bunch yeah. of things and that's exactly where i that's exactly where i end up with it yeah yeah um so yeah i just ended realizing i was atheist and you know what i'm totally fine You're with okay it. my with wife that. is my yeah. wife is atheist uh she was raised that way she outside of jesus she hardly knows anything about the bible my god i envy her yeah you know, it, it strikes me every once in a while that, you know, my my non-religious children know virtually nothing about the Bible except they know what it is. Mm -hmm. But it's to think of how much is. we read it, how much we studied it. I never read it all the way through. It was always a goal of mine to read the Bible all the way through, <laughs> which is almost impossible. I, I sort of crapped out at the uh, in Deuteronomy <laughs> with the... Yeah the bigats, you know, but you but went through us, some of the really bad stuff. Yeah, the Bible was very much a part of our life. And we read mm -hmm. this thing every single day. And I forget mm -hmm. that a lot of other Christians don't. They don't. They don't. And even Christian scientists don't. And yeah, maybe Christian scientists don't too. But I, I read the thing. I mean, I was very into the Bible and um, it's, it's sort of, it's odd. And yet it sort of makes me happy that there are people that just, don't know anything about it. We'll never pick it up. We'll never have They're any interest. Blissfully unaware. And blissfully and unaware. Ended, you know, it's like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, that yeah. Harry movie or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't exist yeah. for them. And and, I'm like, wow, and, imagine that. <laughs> yeah, her whole family is like that. I, I, I have, I won the lottery with in-laws, um, but, um, and she didn't know obviously about anything about christian science until she met me i think she'd heard of the christian science monitor most people right. have yeah and, or, the, or they think we're scientology <laughs> yeah i think there was that too I, I don't remember exactly if she popped her head in the door she'd probably correct me <laughs> um, she's at her sister's place right now i think but um it's um yeah it's just it, it's amazing to meet someone in our Western society who doesn't know. And God, I'm so envious of her. But <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. My it husband is a is an atheist. Has always been, um, yeah. and has always actually been really active in the atheist community. So this is something that he is a big deal for him. He thinks a lot about mm -hmm. it, and mm -hmm. so he was really fascinated when he met me. I, I'm like most people. Oh, I'm sure he had heard of Christian science, but again, didn't really know other than like, oh, you're the ones that don't believe in doctors, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing that he and I have talked about, and this sort of gets back to your story of just being in nature, mm -hmm. you know, we've talked about the the feelings that you get as a believer, especially when you're praying, especially when you're in church, because I did have these feelings, this sort of feeling of of awe. Mm -hmm. you know, and peace and, and contentment. Um, I thought those were tied to Christian science. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that I would not ever be able to have those feelings again. And I realized that's just not true. You can yeah. get it in nature. You can get it 
swimming in the ocean. You can get it. One of my favorite stories that I heard recently was from, I think, an ex-evangelical who had been going to these mega churches all of her life Mm -hmm. and had these wonderful profound feelings of of joy and awe at church oh yeah i found god i felt jesus yeah she really felt it and and she would go to churches where they have these rock bands and you know there's thousands of people and they're all raising their hands and just everyone's Mm -hmm. there together and they're all like-minded people having this wonderful feeling Mm -hmm. and later when she left the you know belief entirely Mm -hmm. she went to a rock concert and had the same (laughs) feeling i get i i would get I would get the same feeling of euphoria at an ACDC concert. Exactly. And she said, and I think it was in a podcast and she said, you know, I realized it wasn't that I enjoyed being in church. It was that I really like going to rock concerts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's how they, and those are the only churches that are really growing in, in the States, I think, but I don't, it's, you know, because religion in your country is declining you're just, you know, 20 or 30 years behind the rest of us. But yeah. um, it, but those churches are gaining because, yeah, it's like going to a rock concert. I probably wouldn't have hated Sunday school if I could have, you know, listened to Van Halen for an hour <laughs> or something. <laughs> exactly. Um, but know. I think what I'm trying to say for anyone who might be listening and might be, you know, afraid to to leave because they're afraid of losing those feelings Mm there you're afraid you're never going to have that feeling again Mm -hmm. it's trust me that feeling is not tied to religion no it's not (laughs) if you you want moments of peace if you want moments of contentedness they're in nature they're from meditating they're from yoga i mean you it's Mm -hmm. it's all around you really can still tap into that and not be a person who believes in magical things i i remember you know, uh, you know, probably mid 20s, 10s, you know, like 2015-ish, you know, I, you know, I get outside a lot, you know, I was out kayak, I think I was kayaking and, you know, I was taking pictures and then later I get home and post it on Facebook because that's what you do nowadays. <laughs> you know, I post pictures of my dinner for fuck's sakes. Um, <laughs> but I remember posting this one picture and I'd gone kayaking on, on a Sunday up in the mountains somewhere, you know, mountain lake and, and I captioned it, this is my church. Yeah. And it exactly is. Like where I live now, I've moved to a different part of British Columbia, you know, from the desert to the rainforest. And um, there's a place called Cathedral Grove near here. It's actually world famous. And it's an old growth stand. And there's Douglas firs in there that are a thousand plus years old. And... Like I said earlier, probably like 300 meters high or whatever. And you can really have a, if you want to call it that, a religious experience there. You walk through there, there's the highway goes right through it and it's a busy highway. You kind of walk a little ways away and yeah, you hear the traffic, but there's like this sort of silence as well. And it's called Cathedral Grove because it literally does look like a cathedral, you know, with this vegetation arching over you because it's, it's vegetation like the Amazon jungle. It's just that it gets cold here in the winter. And um, and yeah, there's just, you know, there's there's a power to this place. Yeah. Places like that. Even being out in the desert, you know, where I lived in, in the Okanagan. And I've been to the high desert in California as well. There's in Arizona and there's a, there's a sense of peace and, 
awe and connection that I have in there as well as any of these kind of places. Yeah. Yeah. My family, uh, our recent desert devotees, we, during the pandemic, we started traveling out to Joshua Tree and we live in Los Angeles, so it's not far. Oh, that's you know, beautiful out there. A couple of hour drive. And we started yeah. just going out there because there were no people and we wanted to get out and we'd never really been to that area. And we just completely fell in love with it. Completely oh, it's fell in love with it. beautiful out there. Yeah. And it's, yeah. like you said, it's very peaceful. It feels spiritual, you know, <laughs> even though it's, <laughs> to it me, is. it's not, I mean, but it, there's that feeling of like, oh, wow, you know. Well, I mean, spirituality, I mean, I've, for me, I define it as it's just simply my connection to what's around me. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. It's empathy. It's, you know, putting your hand on that tree and realizing, oh my God, this thing's a thousand years old and it doesn't give a fuck about, you know, the stress I'm feeling at work today or whatever. Um, and it has zero fucks to give about christian science <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah i went and through a, I went through a, a bit of a mourning period where i knew that faith was dead to me and would never mm -hmm. return but i missed it mm -hmm. you know and so it was around i think 2008 2009 i went on this cruise um that went to egypt israel greece sort of hit all these mediterranean and north african countries and one of the places we went to was uh jerusalem oh wow i'd love to see that yeah i'm really glad i went to to those places when i did and and they took us to there were a lot of religious people on the cruise oh yeah a lot course. of catholics you know they wanted to see the the place going to ground zero there absolute ground zero and um and i was already identifying as an atheist and I, like i said i was sort of in this mourning period and they took us to I wish I could remember what it was, but it was a very, very, very old church. And it was sort of on a spot, you know, special spot where either Jesus was born or he fell or he was crucified, something like that. It was some special oh, spot. I think I, I know what you're talking about. I feel like I've heard about it, but I yeah. can't remember the name of it. So they took us there and we sort of walk in and, and there's a service going and it's very, very old. Mm -hmm. And there's everybody sort of chanting and there's... um mood lighting of course and mm -hmm. and there's incense and there's music mm -hmm. and i completely lost it i stepped outside away from everybody and i sobbed like somebody was ripping my heart out oh wow and it was just and it was a feeling of i miss that i miss that feeling and i was afraid it was gone that i mm -hmm. would never have that that feeling of community of people coming together to do good, to be good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I know I, exactly what you mean. I hadn't found it again yet. So yeah. And it's funny because I, I met a man on that cruise from Australia who was also an atheist and we had a long talk about it. He didn't have a similar reaction because he wasn't at the same place I was at, but mm -hmm. he, he came out and he comforted me. Like he got it. You know, he understood why I was so completely yeah. broken up. You know, but I know that if I went there now, I would not have that reaction. No, I would say, oh, this is historically fascinating. I'm mm -hmm. glad I'm seeing this and it would have zero emotional impact on me at all. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You do. You grieve. Well, you grieve whenever you lose something. You know, you go through the various stages of grief. You know, it's like Kubula Ross. I think it is. Talk about it. 
and yeah i mean to a degree that's true but you know that's that's another box you can put yourself in if you're not careful but you do go through those stages of grief whether it's when somebody dies or the end of a relationship the end of a you know you lose a job you lose a friendship or you yeah, lose loss yeah. yeah or you lose your religion mm -hmm. um you go through anger like you know i keep a blog about my journey from christian science and it's filled with anger <laughs> um now it's just filled with contempt <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know because the anger i don't i mean yeah i still feel angry once in a while you know, like, you know, when I recently rediscovered the fact that, you know, Christian science is still with me up here, <laughs> fucking with my, you know, gray mat, little gray cells, as Hercule Poirot calls them. <laughs> and um, so, you know, you go back and forth, but for the most part, it's just, it's just part of my life now. And yeah. I, I try to exorcise the demons as much as I can. And I've done a pretty good job of it, I think. But, you know, some of it's still there and you just deal with it. Yeah. But and it just becomes you. sort of a part of what makes you, you. I mean, I think that's yeah. the point I'm at now after all these years of, is it just like, yeah, this is, you know, like I said in my own recording with my sister, this is one of the things that makes me who I am now, yeah. you know, is having lived lived in that. It's yeah, you know, for better or worse, it, it is, you know, like uh, I remember an indigenous elder, you know, I shared with them, you know, regrets about all the time I'd spent in Christian science, this and that and the other thing. It was a long, long conversation at a Sundance ceremony. And um, he said, every step you have taken in your life has brought you to where you are now. And if you didn't take, if you missed even one of those steps, you wouldn't be here. And so, yeah, for better or worse, Christian science will always, you know, early on, I wanted to just be away from it and deny it, you know? Yeah. Hmm, there's something that sounds familiar. <laughs> um, but no, I've come to realize that, yeah, it is a part of me. Um, through, you know, this mental health crisis that I was talking about earlier that, you know, I went through late last year. Um, and I realized that Christian science is like, you know, the analogy I use is, you know, if you know anything about computers, there's programs that run in the background. You're not aware of them, but they make your computer run and they're called running processes. Hmm. And Christian science is like a running process in my head and yours and anyone else who's grown up in it. Yeah. And through EMDR therapy, oh God, what does EMDR mean? Emotional. It's, I can't remember. It's an acronym for something. So everyone can go on Wikipedia and look it up or go on <laughs> Google and look it up. But in a nutshell, it's a mild form of hypnosis. And it it's an exercise where you dig deep, you know, you focus on a few questions or whatever. And then you're watching this little light go across and you just, but you're just concentrating. And then you're letting your mind just go wherever it wants to go. And then afterwards, 
you you and your counselor talk it through you know well what did you think blah 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 what went through your head and that's what came out i realized you know i mean it plumbed down into some deep childhood memories like you know a traumatic event i experienced in sunday school was one thing you know in one session and you know just a whole bunch of different ones and we we realized that you know it you know like the whole you know my health was denied well that became part of me and it became part of why i was afraid to confront my employer when i should have mm. you know and so it's a running process in there and it's and i was like oh fuck <laughs> you know and i said to my counselor i said well how do we get rid of it and she goes you can't it's there yeah it's you learn to just it. sort of manage it <laughs> yeah. but what we do is we learn how to deal with it we learn how to manage it like you said and and you know and, and it goes back to where i say knowledge is empowerment i went back to work as a different person more willing to stand up for myself and set parameters and say no i'm not going to do five people's jobs i'm going to do my job and you know currently i'm looking for a new job and i you know that earlier this summer i had a really good job offer but I turned it down. I never would have done that in the past. Mm. But, you know, when I added a bunch of things up, it would have required a very arduous commute to a very small, isolated community, probably about a two hour drive from here down a logging road. And when I had driven there to do the interview, I was just spent. <laughs> and, you know, there was a thought that, you know, part of the job could be done remotely. That's what they had expected but i would still have to be there two or three days a week so there's going to be two or three days i would either have to live in this community of 200 people and nothing else to do especially in the winter when it rains all the time or commute each day up and down this road and i just thought every other aspect of this job is perfect but i just can't do this i'm not going to sacrifice my life for work i moved here to where i live now because I wanted to be near family. I wanted to be in a smaller community. I mean, this is a small town. It's not even 20,000 people. Kelowna is over 200,000. And I just thought I would just be going back to a different version of where I was. And so I turned it down. Yeah. Um, that's a big step. Yeah. You, yeah, learning to set boundaries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> learning difficult to, yeah, to realize what you're going to put up with and what you're not i mean it would have been a wonderful organization to work for don't get me wrong um they were absolutely wonderful people it was one a first nations government indigenous government here but i just thought i can't do this commute and i needed to be honest with them and with myself yeah and you know and 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 they were very great graceful about it they understood completely um and you know there was no hard feelings absolutely none yeah i mean people usually react well when you just 
say what you mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> People and, respond and, and, well to authenticity, you know? Yeah. You're honest and, you know, graceful, obviously. And, you know, and I, I outlined all the reasons and, you know, and that, and that, that's where it was. And, you know, there's a plethora of other jobs I've been applying for, which would be perfect. And they're based here, um, you know, in Port Alberni, where I live now. Yeah. And, you know, the commute would be, I could walk there in 10 minutes or drive in five, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's very far situation. away in a small town. <laughs> yeah. So I think I'll ask you, I, I probably know the answers to these already, but I'll ask the, the two questions I'd, I'd like to ask everybody mm -hmm. at the end of the podcast, which is, um, would you call Christian science a cult? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Um, I wrote down some notes, so <laughs> this might be an edit point. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, just give me a minute because I really wrote some shit down here. So in answer to your question, is Christian science a cult? Um, I don't know. To me, that's an emotionally loaded term, so you have to be careful. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, if you look at the dictionary de definition, you could make a case that every religion's a cult in some way or another. So to me, cultism, like a lot of other things in life, ex exists on a spectrum. You know, at one end, you have people who don't believe in anything, probably. And at the other end, you have Jim Jones and the Heaven's Gate and, uh, you know, Branch Davidians and people like that. And Christian science, I think, somewhere in the middle, but closer to that crazy end. So in answer to your question, yes, I think it is a cult. But it's not like a lot of the classic cults. You can leave and you're probably not going to get harassed and pursued like, you know, Leah Romini did yeah. from Scientology that's not going to happen to you yeah you are going to lose friends you are going to lose family in a lot of cases um but you're not going to have an organizational um you know hit team after you or anything like that yeah there's no fair game in uh <laughs> Christian <Yeah>. science <laughs> you know and there's no you know there's no charismatic leader who's alive um, that's pulling all the strings although you can make the case mary baker Eddy pulls the strings from the grave um so you know you don't have a jim jones you don't have a whoever the dude was with the branch davidians david koresh, david koresh yeah you know you don't have that you don't have you know they're hoarding guns and they're making you drink kool-aid and shit like that Christian science makes you drink a different kind of Kool-Aid. And, <laughs> you know, I think of one person, I remember seeing her when I worked in Boston and I've gotten to know her online and on the phone. We worked on a project several years ago, uh, Liz Haywood, who lost a leg thanks to yeah. Christian science. Yeah. And she calls it Jonestown in slow motion. I love that term. That's such exactly. a great term and so accurate. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it is a cult. Yeah, it, to to a degree, I think it is. You know, there's its own lingo that sort of isolates you in a way. There's a strict belief that isolates you. You know, like I was embarrassed as a kid to talk about Christian Science. I never wanted to talk about it. You know, you and your sister talking about that reminded me of that. 
you know, it's weird. And even as an adult, I didn't talk about it with non-Christian scientists. But now that I've left, I'm extremely free. I <laughs> I will. I don't like talk about it from the every rooftop, but I'm not afraid to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, and the reactions I get from some people are just priceless. <laughs> you know, they look like I've grown two heads or aliens just landed in behind me or something. Yeah, it's hard for most people to digest, for oh, sure. Yeah. My wife thinks Christian science is abuse of the highest order. Yeah. You know, and yeah. gaslighting, I mean, she's, you know, what she's learned about it, she's just appalled. So Yeah. Yeah. Second question, do you think uh, Mary Baker Eddy was a shyster or a true believer? Both. Um, I think she believed, I think she believed in the bullshit. Um, I think she believed she was probably hearing from God. I would probably say it was maybe schizophrenia or something like that. Um, <clears throat> so... I think she what I think she honestly believed in what she was saying. Uh, was she a shyster? Yes, definitely. Um, I don't have insider information, even though I worked at the church. But you know, all you have to do, I would say, read some critical biographies. Read the biography by Edwin Dakin. And I was going to grab it and hold it up, but I don't know where I put it. <laughs> it's out of print, so you're going to have a hard time finding it. Oh, here it is. Okay. This book is 90 plus years old. I got it on Amazon. Oh, I would love to read that. The other one is one that's credited to Willa Catherine Georgine Melamine, if I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, Melmine, she is the one who actually wrote it. Willa Cather mostly lent her name to it. Um, these are both critical biographies, but the big thing with them is they're written by people who were either contemporary to Mary Baker Eddy's time, or like in Dakin's case, the book his book was published in 1929. He was interviewing people who knew her. And he goes a lot into some of the shadier sides of things with Mary Baker Eddy and how she would conveniently become one way or another if it suited her best interests. And I will say Mary Baker Eddy, you know, from reading a lot of these biographies, Mary Baker Eddy never met a dollar she didn't want for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she revised science and health over 400 fucking times. Wow. Evidently, God couldn't get it right the first time. <laughs> <clears throat> Every time she revised that book, she required her students to buy the latest copy. Wow. That's very L. Ron Hubbard of her. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you've got to realize these students and and this information comes from some a lot of these biographies I've read, even one that the church published by Jillian Gill, um, some of it. I don't know. I can't tell you which is which. You know, I just read these a long time ago. But 
these you know, a lot of her first students were people who worked in shoe factories in Lynn, Massachusetts. And you know, you, you, she, her book would cost probably, I don't know what it costs. I think it was somewhere on the order of 10 to $12. We might not think that's a lot now, but it was, that was a day's fucking wages back then. Easily, yeah. Um, her courses of instruction with her, I think I read somewhere that they cost $1,000. Wow. I could be wrong and it might be, a, I know class instruction like that, you can be taken nowadays is a hundred dollars and that's been set for over a hundred years. Um, a hundred dollars in $1,900 is like $3,000 in today's dollars. So man, you know, imagine going to, for two weeks of that bullshit for $3,000. <laughs> um, if, if Mary Baker Eddy's course of instruction was a thousand dollars, which I am 90% certain that's the correct figure. That's the equivalent of $37,000 today. Wow. And these are, a lot of these people were, they worked in factories in New England. They didn't make a lot of money. So, you know, she died and left that church a fortune. I think it was, uh, I don't know, I wrote it down somewhere. Uh, I lost it, but it was... You know, like a couple million dollars, but, it, you know, nineteen ten dollars the equivalent of $97 million today. Wow. Nearly $100 million. Her bequest formed the, it still forms the core of the church's wealth, which is now in excess of a billion dollars. Mm. Um, So, you know, the membership may de- die off, but there's going to be, you know, basically a corpse in Boston forever. Yeah, it's like yet another of many groups that that has tons of money, tons of real estate, and no actual mm-hmm. members. <laughs> no, uh, well, they have assets of over a billion dollars. You know, most of it's real estate in Boston, and a lot of that money also comes from the sale of branch churches that die. Yeah. Um, uh, the woman I dated when I lived in Boston worked in the real estate department there. And she told me about, you know, well, yeah, we just sold the, you know, XX church in Chicago, Illinois or something for, you know, $3.5 million or whatever the fuck it was. It's all money comes to the church. And, and tax-free money, right? Tax-free. Absolutely tax-free. You know, what's funny is I was told my entire childhood that, uh that christian science did pay taxes and that's what made us special and different i don't know who told me this <laughs> well there is the whole per capita tax thing you know a dollar a year you know, <laughs> we, laugh, we laugh at that now but you got to remember 100 years ago a dollar was you know quite a bit yeah you know it's what you earned in a day or something probably yeah but no, um, Christian Science is just as tax exempt as any other religious group in the United States. Yeah. I don't know why I thought they were. It shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I think she was a shyster. Yeah. Or as someone put it, um, you know, with these cult leaders, if you want to call them that, that they they're the first member of their own mm-hmm. cult. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was a very, very, very shrewd business person. Yeah. And a master manipulator, no doubt, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, an example, you know, go back to the cult question. 
back when she was alive, you know, read, I think it, this comes from Dakin's biography. Anyone who went against her was vilified. You know, Augusta Stetson. Yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to think there was a, a dude, I can't, a guy, I can't remember his name. I just remember his picture. Um, and he was vilified in my association meetings as well. Mm. And the only sin he, any of them committed was to disagree with the high priestess of the Royal Lord, Royal Order. <laughs> God um, forbid. So, yeah. yeah. If you ever want to see a different side of Mary Baker Eddy, just read some of these biographies. Which she would have called obnoxious books, right? That was absolutely. The term. <laughs> oh, there's another cult thing. You can't read anything that isn't authorized because you know what happens if you do? You might start to realize that she's a big freaking, uh, you know, <laughs> what? I just don't want to use that. I use fucking bullshit, but there's certain words I won't use. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. We yeah. were definitely discouraged from ever attempting to get alternate viewpoints mm -hmm. of her yeah. of christian science in general yeah. yeah but you know for people leaving christian science i think you have to be ready to read this stuff yeah like i wouldn't you know you don't want to you don't want to jump into the deep end of the pool till you know how to swim and i i think i wouldn't have done well reading this stuff when i first left or even god's perfect child you know caroline mm. Fraser's book which is like it's like my new science and health and all yeah that. yeah um it's incredibly well researched and well oh god yeah i that's where i pull my research because she annotates it and i can look for the original sources if i want you know you learn a lot from reading things like that um you know father mother god you know lucia greenhouse's book that's where i tell people to start and that's the one i handed my wife when we first got together, I just said, here, give this a read. <laughs> You'll know what I've been through. Yeah. Here's your start. Shocked. <laughs> she was absolutely shocked. Yeah. I mentioned in my, my interview with my sister that when I was coming out and you always have those moments of doubt and thinking, well, maybe it is really the real deal. Maybe I'm just whatever <laughs> I would refer to the child cases. Yep chapter and i would make myself mm -hmm. sit down and read the whole thing yeah. and i'd be reminded no this is a horror show <laughs> this is an absolute yeah. horror show yeah caroline fraser's book will really open your eyes i haven't got the newest version because she did a revision she interviewed me for it as well you know based on my experience working at the church and you know i have read the chapter where what I said appears, I'm like, oh my God, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm famous. Um, uh, it, so I want to get the new one because she fills in a lot of stuff that's happened subsequently. And a lot of it, you know, I read it and I'm like, oh, that happened while I was there. You know, I remember this stuff. And, but it's, you know, it's like I say, it's the gold standard. Yeah. And I agree. That, I suppose if, if there are any nails left to be pounded in the coffin of Christian science, that book pounded the last one. You know, I think maybe it was 2014 or 15 when I read it. You know, I was pretty firmly out. I was even, you know, I'd started writing my blog and everything, you know, in 2013. But yeah, reading God's Perfect Child, that really just sealed the deal.
Yeah, it did for me too. Yep. I, I think a lot of people have had that experience. Mm -hmm. And that's why the church really, and you know, the church really hates that book because you can't, you can't um, refute it. It's irrefutable because yeah. she annotates the hell out of it. Yeah, it's and not opinion. That's why, did, that's why she did it. <laughs> it's simple fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I took a leaf out of her book when I write my blog or I write for the ex-Christian Sinus site. I annotate the hell out of it. You know, like part of my answer to if she's a Mary Baker Eddy was a shyster or not. I wrote a piece about that on the ex-Christian Sinus site, completely debunking the fall on the ice story. Yeah, she fell on the ice, but the rest of it's bullshit. <laughs> I mean, if it was such a miraculous healing, why did she start the process of suing the city of Lynn? Oh, and she forgets, and all of the Christian science biographies, the approved ones, fail to mention how often she went back to the doctor who treated her after her miraculous healing. Mm. How often she consulted a fellow student of Phineas Quimby because she was still suffering the effects from a, this debilitating accident. You know, there's, it, you, you know, when I started doing research for that piece that I wrote, I was like, holy fuck. Because that's the foundational story of Christian science. Every religion has their foundational story, you know, like the Mormons, you know, Joseph Smith somewhere up in upstate New York finding the special golden tablets that only he could only read. he could translate. Yeah. You know, or Islam with, you know, Muhammad in the desert for 22 years or whatever it was. Um, everyone has their origin story. And, that and was ours Christian. is a woman falling on the ice in, in Massachusetts yeah, on the way to in the 1860s. Uptight temperance, temperance meeting or something like that. <laughs> and somehow healing herself and starting this yeah. whole thing. Miraculously healing herself. But you know what? Like early writings she made, if this was such a miraculous healing and so foundational to Christian science, don't you think it would have been in the first edition of Science and Health? <laughs> don't you think it would have been mentioned early in the in the establishment of the church it it's isn't hmm. it is not wow um it doesn't appear till many many years later maybe even the early 20th century where she starts talking about it wow um and do you yeah. think that's because she felt the need to have a foundational story i think she i think she needed to have some sort of thing that proves that Christian science is this miraculous healing method. And so it was convenient to turn. This was a story that could conveniently be turned into that. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe she convinced herself that it was true the way we all believed the mythology as kids growing up. You know, memory is an interesting thing. Yeah. It's, it's not about, infallible. Yeah. But, you know, the only truth to the story is she fell on the ice in February in Lynn in 1860. <laughs> yeah. The, the rest of the story is a myth. Mm. She told it as Christian scientists tell it. Yeah. And we, we all retold it again and again. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, she's a shyster. Yeah.
Interesting. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that. I figured you would be a good person to bring in some of this history. You know, again, it's been a long time since I've thought about any of this stuff, and I certainly didn't have a whole lot of exposure to obnoxious books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I so, made sure I exposed myself a lot to obnoxious Yeah, books. yeah. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you, Jeremy. It's nice to finally meet you after yeah. all these years and and hear your thank story. You. And, and um, you know, thank you for all the work that you do in the group and with your blog. And thank you. Yeah. Thank so, you. So have a great night and uh, maybe we'll see you sometime for part two. Yeah. <laughs> well, you too. Yeah. Happy to happy to do it anytime. Okay. Thanks for listening to Leaving Christian Science. Disclaimer, I'm not an expert, I'm not a historian, I'm not a therapist, I'm just an ordinary, imperfect human who had the misfortune of being born into Christian science. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the host. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace professional, medical, legal, or psychiatric advice. <laughs>